Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Bolada, Cloisterol Gathley, good morning and welcome to Hay and to today's uh, event, which is in association with the University of Cambridge. Lucy Delap is a lecturer in modern British history at the University of Cambridge and she has published widely on history of feminism, gender, labour and religion. Uh, she was last here five years ago uh, talking about her book Knowing Their Place, The History of Domestic Service in 20th Century Britain and she will be signing copies of that in the book tent afterwards. But she's here today to talk about men and feminism. Please do welcome Lucy Delap. Thank you very much. Great to see so many people here today for a discussion about men and feminism. Delighted to see, I'm looking now, so many men in the audience. It's absolutely super. So thanks for coming. I'm going to talk to you about my research today, uh, but I'd also really like to have the chance for some, some questions and some discussion. So please do uh, sit here, have a little listen, but also think about some questions, think about things you might like to, to share with the audience. So last Christmas, my 15-year-old uh, son gave me a present. And that was a good start in itself for any of you who have a 15-year-old in your lives. He had been to a second-hand bookshop and he had found a book about feminism. It was a Jermaine Greer book. I was really pleased that he had selected such an appropriate thing for me. And um, very grateful. And I said to him, so are you going to read this book? And he looked absolutely horrified. <laughs> Now, looking at his face and that moment of horror brought me back to my own childhood and my mum's gift of um, Sheila Kitzinger's Women's Experience of Sex. Does anyone remember that book? It was a brilliant book. She gave it to my two brothers one Christmas. And they also looked pretty horrified. <laughs> so do men not think feminism is for them? Why might they feel this horror, this feeling of, I really can't go there, when they are addressed by feminist texts? Do they think that the books just aren't for them? Or do they think that they're going to find in those books or those videos, those websites, the, the diverse ways in which we might experience feminism, do they think they're going to find a lot of anger from women about male selfishness, about their sexual aggression, about their lack of orientation to women's needs? Is feminism all about anger and antagonism from women to men? It seems to me that that is one of the very strong stereotypes that runs through a lot of our reporting on feminism, a lot of the public conversations that we have about what feminism is. It's felt to be something which women produce and which is targeted at men. So most men think that the spirit of feminism is a conversation between women, perhaps it's a a mode of sisterhood and solidarity between women, but that where they're involved, they're the targets. Historically, there is some truth to this, so I'm going to take us back to think historically. And if we look back at some of the Edwardian uh, suffrage organizations, some of the very important ones, uh, such as the, uh, the Pankhurst-led Women's Social and Political Union, were, in fact, women only. And if we look in more recent times, if we look at the 1970s and the real resurgence of feminism around women's liberation, the movement went from an initial experiment with mixed-sex consciousness-raising groups, mixed-sex conferences, 
two women-only versions of that. And one of the very early participants, Sheila Robotham, who some of you may have read her work, she talked about the men who were there at the beginning who felt, she said, nervous hostility towards being involved in a conversation about feminism. So from 1973, the National Women's Liberation Movement conferences were women-only, and lots and lots of organizations followed suit. You have women-only discos, women's centers, uh, discussion groups, and so on. And my favorite example of this is the de facto women-only newsletter that was produced by the clerical staff at the BBC. They wanted something that could circulate freely around women who were employed by the BBC, but which wouldn't be read by men. And in a stroke of genius, they produced their newsletter in shorthand. (laughs) So lots of women during that period, uh, Edwardian suffragism and the women's liberation movement later on in the century, they drew a lot of energy, a lot of sustenance from those relationships of support between women, and women-only settings were really important. But I think it's important for us not to obscure the ways in which feminism has also always been something that men do. So I'm going to look back at a couple of historical examples of this, and I'll be asking how easy has it been for men to be feminists. So I really want to give us a, a kind of a hard look at what it was like to be a male feminist. And I'm going to talk first of all about the women's suffrage movement, and then I'll talk um, at more length about my own research in the uh, period of the 1970s and 80s. So let's start with the women's suffrage movement. It's been very widely celebrated and commemorated this year. I'm sure none of you have missed the the wonderful Vote 100 um, events. And um, we've seen the opening of the, um, the Millicent Fawcett statue in Parliament Square, shamefully all male until this very year. Has anyone seen the statue? Yeah, a few of you. Yeah, it's a fantastic statue. Um, And one of the things that I like about the statue is that Millicent Fawcett is there on the pedestal, but underneath, and you can see, here's a little close-up, underneath there's the names and the pictures of 59 other activists who contributed to that struggle. So this is a real decentering of a sort of heroic figure who does it all for herself, and it's a recognition of the collective nature of the struggle. And amongst those 59 names on the plinth, there are four men. They were pretty politically diverse. They ranged from liberal supporters, such as Fred Lawrence and his Fred. You can see him there. He's the, he's the one nearest to us in the dock. He married Emmeline Pethick, and they both changed their names to Pethick Lawrence in a gesture of marital equality. They were jailed and they were force-fed over their suffrage activism. Their belongings were sold at public auction to cover some of the costs of the broken windows that they had been accused of um, inciting. So they were people who had a deep and profound conviction. The statue also celebrates um, uh, early socialists such as George Lansbury, the radical vicar, Claude Hinscliffe, you can see him mentioned here on the poster, and the the, the homosexual socialist, uh, Lawrence Hausman. You can see him here. So why did these men and many thousands of others get actively involved in the suffrage struggle? Some of them were Christian humanists, and they believed that uh, sex made no difference to the human soul. Others talked about liberal values, such as the need for fair play. Some supported radical ideas, the radical idea being that all adults should vote. Doesn't sound so radical now, but that was putting them on the kind of fringes of the movement. Or for some, that property holders of both sexes should vote. Some thought that women would bring values of purity 
and uh, uh, virtue into the dirty world of politics. Others recognized that large numbers of women were employed workers and that they might need the vote to protect their working conditions. So the reasons for male support for the suffrage movement were very varied, as varied, of course, as women's support. Men enthusiastically participated in marches, in suffrage theater, in artwork, in fundraising, in editing periodicals, and uh, in the more uh, militant um, acts of tax resistance and of prison hunger striking. In fact, when female suffragists were awarded the right to wear their own clothes in prison, that was a recognition of their political prisoner status in 1910. Male suffrage prisoners did not get the same concession. So the government looked at those male suffragists and said, no, you're not really political prisoners because you're not here for your own cause. You're here on behalf of women. As a result, in 1910, some men um, hunger struck specifically to protest that lack of recognition of their political status, the lack of recognition that they might be male feminists and were force-fed. So their commitment was intense. And for some commentators at the time, this signaled the arrival of something that they called new manhood. So we might think of the new man as something that is being kicked around at the other end of the century, the, the late 20th century. But in fact, even in this period, a Daily Mail journalist produced a book in 1913 which was titled The New Man, A Portrait Study of the Latest Type. And coming from the Daily Mail, you can perhaps imagine what the author thought. He said, the new man has been created by the women's suffrage movement. He's less virile than ordinary men. <laughs> the conclusion of the book with horror, the new man acquiesces in the position of the subordinate. So for all that fear of subordination, what did it change, all these thousands of men getting involved in the women's suffrage movement? Well, I think that that activism could be um, harnessed to actually a sense of complacency, a sense that women voting didn't necessarily mean that the world would change very dramatically. Some radicals saw the vote as just a beginning. But for others, it was a fairly moderate uh, citizen right. Women already had the vote at the local government level. And that, although today it seems like a minor citizenship right, at the time, in the Edwardian period, local government was really powerful. So women, in some senses, already were powerful voters. And it was possible for men to join those men's leagues for women's suffrage and to think that not much would change about the world by having women as voters. As we know, women were awarded the vote in 1918 and 1928. But in fact, there was little impetus to change on many, many very important fronts. So the sexual double standard was still threaded through public and private life for much of the 20th century in marriages and in workplaces. Equal pay was endlessly delayed, and that's still a battle that we're still fighting. Women did not get the right to act as Church of England clergy until 1994. So male privilege continued to structure civic and social and economic and political life. Male feminism didn't necessarily requ require any very profound giving up of male privilege. Now, it was frustration at the lack of change, the slow pace of change, 
that led to another real resurgence in the women's movement, the one that we might call the women's liberation movement, that kicked off in the 1970s and um, was very, very influential on politics and everyday life in the 70s and 80s. So that's the period that I've really tried to uh, research in detail, and I've been really fascinated how far men felt that that was a period of change that spoke to them, spoke to their needs, and where they might have something to offer. So in the course of that, I've interviewed about, about 40 men, about five um, prominent feminist women to ask about what it was like to be a man in that period. And these were men who were all quite closely involved in high-profile forms of activism or writing. Uh, so they're not just people who kind of thought they might be feminists. They're, they're, they're men who actually did something uh, in the women's movement or the men's movement. And in the course of doing those interviews, I collected an absolutely vast treasure trove of archival materials, materials that I didn't really know were going to exist. So I'm a historian of feminism, and when I set out on this project, I thought there would be nothing, nothing tangible to show us about men's commitment to feminism. But I was totally wrong. I'll show you some of these, these sources. Here's some of the very early um, periodicals that uh, were handed to me. These were mostly things that had sat up in people's attics. They hadn't really made it to the, the women's library, the British library, the usual sorts of places we'd go to look. So men were pulling out from their attics these kinds of periodicals. You can see there's a bit of a kind of theme to the, uh, to the aesthetic of it here. Um, they were, they were self-made, they were amateur. Uh, a lot of them were, were written or they used Letraset. Um, uh, they're, they're kind of classic zines, if you like. If you look at the ones that emerged a bit later, you'll see that they became a bit more professional. So here, this is one that was produced uh, in Cardiff, um, the men's anti-sexist newsletter. It was a kind of um, internal newsletter type um, uh, production for men's groups around the country. And then up here, we've got Achilles' heel, which was kind of like the, the, the spare rib of the men's movement. It was the glossy, professionally produced, um, uh, high production values uh, magazine, which, which ran through to the, to the mid-1990s and was their sort of public face of how can men and masculinity be different. If we um, look at some of the more, um, the more local resources, here's a couple of examples. This one was produced in Oxford, in St. Anne's, by a mixed-sex um, uh, feminist group um, in the 80s. And this one from Sheffield, it's a kind of resources pack that I think they, they probably envisaged would be used in schools, but also in men's groups, and that they would hand out at various um, uh, kinds of events they were running. So there was, there was a very, very strong grassroots men's movement as well as the, uh, the national infrastructure. So who was producing this kind of material? Most of the men who were active in the men's movement were quite well educated. Uh, a lot of them were left-leaning, so a lot of them had a background in socialist or Marxist politics, but not, uh, not exclusively. Most of them were white, although I did interview some, uh, some uh, black and Asian men as well about their activism. Their diversity lay in their sexuality. So the group that I interviewed, about a third of them were straight men, about a third of them identified as gay or bisexual, and interestingly, about a third of them couldn't really be pinned down in any sense to their sexuality. We could call them queer men. So they were men who didn't really fit uh, any of the boxes that I had. Why were they so interested in feminism? Some of them uh, had uh, gained an interest directly from quite painful relationship breakdowns. So this is the period, historically, where the trends around divorce, 
uh, are peaking in the 70s and 80s. It's, it's, it's rapidly going up. So these were men who had broken up from their partners, split up from their wives. Some of them had seen that in their, uh, in their parents as well. And that had given them a sense of, we need to do things differently. Others were just reading feminist books. They were reading Jermaine Greer. They were reading Audre Lorde. They were reading even Andrea Dworkin, who's a, a radical feminist that um, it must have been quite difficult for men to read. Often that was through their socialist activism or it might be through their university experiences. So these were men who felt immense shame at being a man and at how patriarchy had operated in their lives, in their immediate personal relationships. But they were also men who felt real optimism. They really felt something could change. Most of the men in this period who wanted to pursue feminist goals in some sense did not call themselves feminists. So occasionally in the interviews, they'd say, well, now I would call myself a feminist. But in those days, that didn't seem like something I could do. So they used terms like anti-sexist or sometimes pro-feminist. So they sort of wanted to keep a distance from the women's movement. And that was very typical of their sort of self-effacing nature. They would always say, well, it wasn't really anything. It wasn't really uh, a movement. But in fact, this was not a collection of individuals. This, to all intents and purposes, was a pretty significant social movement of the period, with thousands of men involved in national conferences, in periodicals, in networks, in grassroots uh, uh, initiatives. They undertook some interesting public um, uh, forms of activism. You can see here, this was the Cardiff group who specialized in graffitiing sexist uh, ads. You can see there the, the promises, we can improve your sex life. There's an um, uh, objectifying picture of a woman. This is a, a bed manufacturer, and, um, uh, and they've contested that advert. They picketed sex shops. They sometimes leafleted people who were going to, um, to see films that they regarded as sexist films. One man that I interviewed very proudly showed me his designs for men's skirts. He was a kind of early Grayson Perry, if you like, and he had worn those skirts in public at some risk of personal violence. To give you an example of one of their more organized initiatives, in Liverpool, founded in 1981, was a group called Creches Against Sexism, and that became a national network with branches across 10 or 12 uh, British cities. And they um, set out to provide male-run um, uh, childcare at women's events, including places like Greenham Common. And you can see here, this is a picture from uh, the crash that was run at the very first Women's Liberation Movement uh, conference in Oxford in 1970. It's a, very, it's a very classic picture of Stuart Hall, for those of you who recognize him up there on the right. So for many of the young men who took part, childcare was a very concrete contribution that they wanted to make to women's liberation. For many of them, it was also their first contact with children. These were quite young men, and they really looked forward to spending time with children and being able to use that as a means of bringing out their more caring um, side as a man. So these were interesting and sometimes quite well-organized, quite extensive efforts on the part of men to do something as feminist supporters. And compared to the male suffrage feminists that I talked about earlier, those who were affiliating and getting involved in women's liberation could not be complacent about what that meant for their lives. Because the 1970s feminist critique of patriarchy was very urgent, it was very far-reaching. It expected to see changes, not just on a single reform like the vote, 
which might be in the keep of government, but changes that would penetrate marriages and families and workplaces and street culture and right down into the psyche of men and women. The change was profound. Men were being invited to give up their privileges, to listen harder to women, to take responsibility for their children, for their sexual behavior, and for their emotions. So this was a period where women were saying that they were no longer going to perform that domestic labor, that sexual labor, and that emotional labor that had underpinned men's comfort. That was pretty discomforting for a lot of men to hear. But for other men, this was a real opportunity. They didn't particularly enjoy being the kind of man that they were expected to be. So men who were supportive of the women's movement talked about their real hatred for the competitive ethos that they were forced to live by, the competitiveness of their relationship with other men. They admired the kinds of emotional support that they saw women giving each other. They were lonely. They wanted more contact with their children. They wanted to be more committed fathers. Some of them didn't like their breadwinner roles. Some of them wanted to explore different forms of, of sexual desire that they didn't feel they had the, the space to do. Some of them had been victims of sexual abuse, but they'd found it impossible to talk about. Now, as you can perhaps imagine, this was, for some feminist women, like red rag to a bull. They were very suspicious about men's motives. They often saw anti-sexism as a kind of performance that straight men used in order to chat up feminist women. They weren't completely wrong there <laughs> in some cases. They were uninterested in men who were talking about loneliness and depression. They perceived men as the beneficiaries of patriarchy in their pay, in their sexual access to women, and in their failure to take on domestic labor. So a lot of women were very hostile to anti-sexist men, and you can get a little flavor of this. This is a, um, I don't know how well you can see the cartoon, but it's, it's a cartoon that was used to illustrate um, uh, a longer article, which was uh, written by a man about going off to a, a men's weekend, um, and uh, the response from the feminist typesetters plotting to help with the washing up, are we darling, says it all really. Many of the anti-sexist initiatives that men took were quite hard to sustain. So the Crushes Against Sexism initiative proved quite, um, uh, it, it, it ran into a lot of hostility from women. Some women were uneasy about having men look after their daughters. And the men who undertook the crush work were surprised at the level of suspicion and hostility and animosity that they encountered. I think perhaps naively they had expected to be thanked for the childcare they were providing. But instead, they found themselves as kind of visible representatives of wider patterns of injustice. Because women were still very aware that they performed the lion's share of childcare, even if men did occasionally undertake crash work. And to make matters worse, many or probably most men on the left did not step up to this challenge. So it was still the case that this was a minority of men who, who thought, yes, I should be uh, doing this kind of childcare. The wider public response was also distinctly mocking. So BBC Women's Hour devoted an hour to the men's movement and men's groups in, uh, in April 1987. And they asked men's groups if they wanted to you know, record little snippets of their 
um, their discussions and they would broadcast it. A lot of men's groups were delighted, national, national platform. It was only afterwards that they realized this was to be broadcast on April the 1st. It was an April Fool's Day. As in the Edwardian period, and many of you will know, there was a lot of talk about new men in this period, but as in the Edwardian period, they were being um, presented as kind of wimpish, as sexually unattractive. So I would say that the lack of support from feminist women and the wider lack of a positive self-image for these so-called new men or anti-sexist men meant that the men's movement was ebbing away by the end of the 1980s. There was little sense anymore in that period that men were reading feminist writers and the media started to talk about the new lad or the bloke as the stereotypical male of the 1990s. Now, some anti-sexist men had rejected this kind of drift towards the wimpish new man. As one of my interviewees put it, simply to be there as a doormat for the women's movement, I never actually liked that very much. So he was speaking to this attempt within the men's movement to find a more positive way of being, being male. And from the late 1970s, some men started to use the term men's liberation to capture that sense of a, a positive agenda. So these were men who were trying to explore their bodies, their emotional relationships with other men, their sexual desire, in a positive way that didn't damage women. These were still men, I think, who were in dialogue with feminism at this point. But inevitably, lots of uh, feminist women found this very unconvincing. And they feared that the men's movement was losing its alliance with the women's movement and was drifting off into something else. John Rowan, who was a very prominent um, British anti-sexist activist, published a book called The Horned God in 1987, a book which he said was intended to help men to heal their wounds and get in touch with their deep inner male. And some of those wounds he presented as having been caused by those he, he termed radical feminists. So he opened the book. I suppose women can read this book if they want to, over the shoulder of a man, but it is not intended to enlighten or entertain women. So rather than reading Kate Millett or Andrea Dworkin, you start to see men in this period of the 1980s, 1990s, reading books like The Horned God, reading books like the American Robert Bly's uh, Iron John that was published in 1990. These are kind of spiritual, new agey influence books that are um, very invested in the idea of male bonding, male bonding rituals, getting back to, uh, back to nature and deep sources of masculine self-worth. So what can we make of all this? I think there were some interesting explorations of new manhood in the 1970s, but I would say that there was no very stable gender order in that period. You can see high-profile figures emerging in press and political commentary, like uh, um, Neil Kinnock here and Ken Livingstone, who might be identified as new men, who were representing forms of masculinity that were emotionally forthcoming, that were responsive to feminism. But forms of masculinity that denigrated women and gay men continued, I think, to have a lot of wide appeal. The 1980s saw the cult status of the, the SAS, the Special Air Service, sort of military-style um, uh, masculinity, as well as the popularity of the Rambo films. Bullying executives like Robert Maxwell, or old-style union bosses like Arthur Scargill, they were still validating a, a very different kind of masculine style, very much not the new man. 
And Margaret Thatcher's vendetta against the wets in her cabinet seems to confirm that sense of, of aggression in public life, even if, ironically, this was now being exercised by a woman. Even Thatcher, I think, couldn't stabilize this gender order. And again, perhaps ironically, uh, a very distinctly mild-mannered uh, John Major took over her, seeming to promote a more consensual style in politics, a different kind of masculine self-presentation. So there's a lot of options floating around here. I don't think there's any one sense in which any of them have um, hegemonic status in this period. So my research on late 20th century masculinities and, and feminist men draws to a close with a look at some sources that I've used to try and get a sense of how people were living these changes, how figures at this high-profile level like Kinnock or Scargill or John Major might have been informing people's everyday lives. And to find that out, I turned to Mass Observation, which some of you may know, a fantastic project founded um, in 1937 as an attempt to, to get an anthropology of ourselves it was an attempt to get people to write about their ordinary lives, to observe other people around them, to overhear their conversations and report back what British people were saying on the street, in the pub. It's, it's a great resource. As you can imagine, for a historian, it's absolute gold dust to know what people were talking about in the pub when they were talking about sex or gender. So Mass Observation asked its diarists in 1991, hundreds of people, uh, what they thought it was to be manly. What comes to mind when you think of masculine? Now, lots of the answers were very uh, predictable. Locker rooms, sweaty bodies, real ale, etc. dirty jokes. Another person said, one who has a well-built physique is strong-willed, dependable. These are the kind of traditional answers. But in amongst them, we have some answers that suggest that maybe change was uh, percolating down to everyday life. The changes in fashion seemed like a very important realm where men looked different, where men had different kinds of options. One said, I'm constantly amazed at not only the wide range of colors men wear nowadays, but also the way in which they wear them. Great splashes of different colors on shirts and trousers. Young men out for the evening in a black bow tie, a lounge suit jacket and jeans. It's very, it's very 80s, that vision, isn't it? The bow tie. But certainly clothes were suggesting a different way of performing masculinity. Others pointed to those high-profile kind of new man-type figures. Neil Kinnock is a most engaging man. I feel I can laugh and cry with him. He shows in public the man he is. Mass observation also poked a little bit deeper into this question of, of masculinities. And they asked people, uh, what is the new man? Does he exist? Most answered that they didn't have the faintest idea. Reminds us, I think, helpfully of the fact that these, these kind of cultural cliches may not really have much purchase at the level of ordinary people's lives. Some suspected that the new man was a kind of advertising cliche and didn't have any real connection into real life. For some, they still felt that the new man must be a gay man. So one says, I wouldn't be all that successful, having little feeling for interior furnishings, color schemes, flowers, elegantly conceived meals... So I think you can see here that there's a kind of persistent thread of homophobia that runs through um, public life in the 70s and 80s, which is still making it very difficult to outline what a new man might be without running into those questions of, of uh, sexuality. But despite that lack of identification with the new man, you can see there amongst the answers a sense of change, a more routine acceptance by men 
of housework, of childcare, greater communication between men and women. One of the mass observers said that he wasn't a new man, but he called himself a funny, emotional chap who does housework, makes beds, washing up, does the washing, irons, does the gardening, and cries at sad movies. And for me, this is a nice sense of the renegotiation of masculinity that might be happening at that level of everyday life, and which did, I think, fulfill some of the hopes of anti-sexist men. So that is where my story ends in 1991. Where does it leave us today? The resurgent feminist movement of the past few years, I think, is unconvinced by the idea that somehow masculinities have just evolved into a sort of nicer place, a, uh, a place where we can all cry at movies together. You can see toxic masculinity very clearly demonstrated at those high, level, um, uh, uh, high levels of culture and, and, and politics, Donald Trump, Harvey Weinstein. There are flourishing lads' cultures at British universities, I think also in parliament and also in workplaces. For those of you who've looked at it, there's a very shameful rolling testimony on the wonderful everyday sexism site that Laura Bates um, set up that suggests that men are still harassing women, that no doesn't mean no. So it's no surprise that many women today are deeply angry. I do think, however, there is anger amongst some men and also a determination to be, um, to be part of the solution. So the important developments that I think have shaped gender politics today on the one hand, I think there has been a genuine diminishment of the power of homophobia. You've seen a very widespread integration of LGBT people into churches and workplaces and into politics and into culture. And that's an enormous and historic shift. When you look back at the anti-sexist men's movement, they were really deeply hung up on this question of homophobia and how to respond to the needs of gay and bisexual individuals. Enormous amounts of energy were spent worrying about whether if you were a feminist man, that meant you had to also be what they called politically gay. In other words, whatever your sexual desires for men might be or not be, you, you needed to identify as gay in order to be a feminist man. I think that in today's atmosphere of much more um, relaxed acceptance of sexual pluralism, that feminist men are no longer um, uh, uh, tearing themselves up about that question of whether they have to be politically gay. I think another big change has been the rise of non-binary forms of gender. And that's, I think, helped us move on from debates that used to be framed around the idea of winners and losers, of aggressors and victims. So the antagonistic sense that feminists were somehow out to get men, or that men would inevitably lose out as women gain power, I think has given way to a more fluid sense of queer possibility. Gender politics is no, no longer so kind of formally organized around static categories of male and female. Now, I, this, of course, is a process that is still running its course. I don't think we've come to the end of this by any means. But I do think that gender pluralism is something that can help more individuals feel like they might have a stake in feminism. What's the legacy of all the um, efforts that I showed you today? I've suggested their limits. I've suggested the ways in which the men's movement sort of got diverted off into men's liberation in a way that wasn't particularly helpful. But I do think that we can see precursors there in their important efforts, like Crushes Against Sexism and the other um, such organizations that have allowed for today's 
fantastic efforts by people like the Good Lads Project, who are challenging lads' cultures in uh, universities, or somebody like Grace and Perry, a very high-profile um, uh, um, cultural um, uh, uh, icon of, di of difference, of gender difference. I think that those are possible, not because today is uniquely progressive, but because it's always been possible for men to respond to feminism in creative, innovative ways and to see themselves as in dialogue with feminism. Now, I don't think that's going to be a process that ever comes to an end. I think we need to keep remaking that dialogue around men and women and feminism. But I think that um, women need to greet men's efforts to do that with, with generosity. I think in the past, in the, in the period that I've been looking at, we don't always see that generosity. We see a lot of anger which gets kind of uh, projected out onto feminist men in a way that did not help them to sustain their activism. And I think taking this long historical view that I've tried to do over the past hundred years uh, today reminds us male feminism can take many formats. It can be very personally transformative for men. And we shouldn't let high-profile figures like Donald Trump eclipse the feminism of many men that we can see, for example, on the 2017 Women's March. It was labeled as a women's march. It seemed to be uh, a women's space, but it was fantastic to see so many men out on that march joining women in their commitment to feminism. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. We've got some time now, and I'm hoping we can have a conversation. So there are some mics going around. Do have a think about questions. Yes, just right behind you there is a question. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. It's very informative and to hear um, how men have been put off by this and how it puts a lot of women off, I think, as well, the term feminism. Mm. So do you think feminism as a term has run its course? And we just think about a new term to include that equality and anti-sexism. It's a great question. And my um, research when I started out as a historian was uh, very much focused on the coining of the word feminism, which began to be used um, on the continent in sort of the late 1890s and began to be used in Britain in the kind of sense that we might recognize it today, around, around 1910, a little bit before. 1910. And the reason why the term feminism was coined was because the word that was um, available was the women's movement, and that was thought to be too exclusionary of men. So it's very interesting that the term feminism was one that was deliberately elbowing aside the idea of the women's movement and trying to say we need a movement where both men and women can be involved. For that reason, I've always thought that the term is extremely progressive. Uh, but you're absolutely right that for some people, it's a term where they always say, feminism is not for me. And in particular, uh, I think that's been something where black women have sometimes felt, I'm not sure that this agenda, this feminist agenda, is an agenda that I feel comfortable with. So in the 1970s, you see black women's groups uh, with very feminist goals preferring other terms, such as um, sometimes they call themselves black feminists, sometimes they call themselves womanists or womenists. So there's a whole variety of other terms that have been experimented with. I actually think that one of the reasons why we've seen quite profound change uh, in just looking back to the last three, four years has been the success of hashtags that aren't using the word feminism, but are using something like Me Too, or Time's Up, or He For She. 
So I, I do think that there's um, a space for a wider variety of, of ways in, if you like, to that, 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 that space that we can call the space of gender justice. But I actually still feel quite attached to feminism, and one of the reasons why I'm attached to it is because it helps us look back at the, the history of all these initiatives, many of which have also used, for the last 100 years, used that term feminism, and keeps us in historical dialogue. But, but for me, there's a space for those hashtags as well. Okay, there's a question there at the back, a couple of questions there at the back, and yes, some here. Please just... Yes, let's have this one down here first. Thank you. Uh, a few years ago, David Cameron famously refused to be called, uh, wanted to be labelled a feminist. Do you feel that that's had a negative effect, or do you think it would have had a profound, made a profound dif difference to the movement had he said he was? Well, I like to think that, um, uh, on some level, it was just a hesitation. It was a disappointing moment, but it was a moment that forced a conversation about who could be a feminist. I actually think the more compelling moment was when Barack Obama wore that T-shirt, this is what a feminist looks like. And he was very straightforward in his affiliation. And as a black man, that was, um, that was a bold move. Because as I've said, there's been a lot of criticism about feminism as a, a kind of um, you know, a white uh, intellectual discourse that doesn't understand the needs of black women. So for, for Barack Obama to, to, to make that, um, that bold statement was fantastic. Would it have changed anything if, if David Cameron um, had uh, signed up to feminism? I don't think that the kinds of um, debates that we're having about gender are particularly strongly influenced by our political leaders. I actually think it's more cultural leaders and you know, people who are there in cultural creative industries. It really matters when um, Beyonce says feminist behind, you know, as her backdrop. And I think that's the place where we're going to get real kind of leverage to get people you know, engaging with that word and asking what, what, what does that word mean in my life. Hi. Yeah, one there. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm a, a teacher in an inner city school in Birmingham, and all the kids in my fantastic, wonderful school are not white. Mm. And I find as, as they get to 15 and 16, I'm constantly battling with them to accept a more equal culture for them because they're raised in a culture where that's not taught. Mm. Um, and it's a battle that I'm fighting on both the male and the female front. I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts on how, how we as a society can progress there. Yeah. Well, as a parent of teenage sons myself, I don't think it's necessarily just in kind of, you know, multicultural inner city schools where you have that problem. I, I think that how we engage, um, you know, y young adults with questions of gender justice is a really powerful question, you know, that goes across all different groups in society. I think that there's, there was that very powerful moment when Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie published Why I Am a Feminist. And it was all about a conversation that she had had with a male friend. And it, it really modeled the sense that actually those questions are powerful, are important uh, for that demographic, for that age group. And it gives us a great way in to try to say to people, yes, this matters to you. I, I actually also think that when we look at um, the past 20 years and the kinds of changes we've seen, I think that there's a wider range of choices that boys can, can adopt compared to, say, um, the kind of compulsory blue that 
was there in childhoods of the 50s and 60s and 70s. And I think that actually the kind of the policing of gender has come down hardest in the last 20 years on girls who are finding a sort of compulsory pink, blighting, I think, some of their, their experiences. Uh, it's harder for girls to know how to, you know, to, to, to be different. For boys, I think that those, those comments about clothing, you know, that, that boys can wear different colors, that boys can be quite different, is certainly there at least for early, uh, you know, for early, early years, for, say, under adolescence. For adolescence, um, you know, yes, I, 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 I take your point that gender sort of orthodoxy comes in with a vengeance, but I don't think that that's because they don't, um, they don't feel the kind of distress and pain of those, of, of those attempts to pigeonhole themselves. I think they do, but it's very hard for them to talk about it. But we've got these wonderful texts like the, the uh, Ngozi Adichie, which help us do that. Thanks. Question up there. Hi, hi thanks. Uh, you, you mentioned the flourishing lads culture in universities. I mean, it's been a long time since I was at university, so can you elaborate on that? I mean, how bad are things? What's your experience? I'm at a women's college in Cambridge. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> Um, uh, I was quite shocked when I was recently working in London um, about the kinds of comments I'd get about sports teams and the cultures that went around, around sports. Um, it can be quite bad. You know, there's, there, we're having big debates at the moment about sexual consent. We have compulsory consent training for all of our students when they come in. And we don't do that just because we're progressive. We do it because they need it. They don't get uh, what it means to consent to sex. So I would say that um, for all my optimism about the sense that feminism is opening up, that more people are invested in it, there clearly is a sense that these people are coming to university at 17 or 18, there's quite a lot of drinking, uh, and that goes with um, unacceptable sexual behavior. But I do think um, the, kind of the, the bright side there is that universities are starting to take it more seriously. Some of you may have seen the... Um, the students who were expelled from Exeter University recently over their racist um, and sexist behavior. And that is quite um, a, a powerful sign that universities say, yes, this may be happening in our student body, but we're not going to, we're not going to accept it. So I like to think that there's, there's a sense of change there. Yes, one up at the back there. Uh, thank you. You've, there was an enormous sort of period of time in between that initial wave in yeah. the 1910s, 1920s, and then in the 1970s again. What is the reason for that London activity? And was there anything going on that we're just not aware of? Yeah, I wanted to write a history which would stretch from suffrage to the 1990s. But when I came to look for sources, I really couldn't find anything beyond the, um, the suffrage period and, and covering that, that period of lull, if you like. However, I don't think it was uh, a particularly a period of lull. And um, one of the areas where there was a lot of activism happening um, was around questions of equal pay. And a lot of that is happening in the union movement. Now, the union movement did not keep very good records. For historians, it's, it's, it's deeply frustrating that a lot of the debates that were happening were happening face to face where there's uh, no way of capturing exactly what was going on. It also has to be said that not all the unions were really backing uh, equal pay for women, but certainly the debates were happening in the union movement, and there were some victories around equal pay 
particularly in the, in the 1950s. So there's not nothing to say, but it's, it's harder for a historian to get access where there's no um, particular archive that we can go to to look at that. I also think that the church is another area where there was significant activism across the whole 20th century, and some, uh, some men were involved in that, although, again, I think that's a place where uh, women were taking the lead uh, in the Church of England in particular. Uh, down there? Yes, thank you. Um, thanks for a wonderful talk, Lucy. Um, I was wondering, I was really struck by your comment at the end um, that you felt there's a need for women to act with generosity um, when it comes to um, you know, male feminist initiatives. Are there limits to uh, the degree to which men should be able to sort of drive, you know, good-intentioned uh, feminist initiatives? Um, are there spaces that men should be invited into mm. um, by women um, and perhaps where there is a place for men to be excluded at mm. times? Yes. <laughs> I think that women-only spaces have proved really powerful in the past and continue to do so. I also think that men-only spaces, they were always controversial. When men said, we're going to have a men-only men's group, there was always a lot of suspicion. Women would always say, you've got parliament, you've got the boardrooms, why do you need a men-only a men -only men's group? Um, but I think that powerful things happened in those men's groups particularly around opening up and revealing forms of vulnerability that, for some men, they couldn't really do that in, in, in the company of women. So I think single-sex initiatives remain important in, in, across the board in all sorts of realms. Um, I do think that women were right to be um, suspicious, to, to, um, to set the bar high when men came along and said that they wanted to be feminists we do find some men hanging on to really um, problematic forms of behavior. In fact, two of the men's groups, I interviewed people from uh, scores of men's groups, but two of the groups where I talked to people told me that they ended up um, breaking up as a group because there was some act of violence. Some, one, 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 somebody was pushed down the stairs, another, there was just a kind of big fight. So the fact that anti-sexist men were willing to still end things with their fists <laughs> suggests that sometimes those men's groups were not particularly uh, progressive. So, um, you know, that kind of, that suspicion, fair enough. But the, the real hostility, I think, was, was unacceptable. I mean, so to give you an example of that, I was totally shocked in one interview where a man revealed to me that he had been sexually abused as a child, shocking enough. But he went on to tell me the tragic story of how he had taken that story to a mixed-sex uh, um, uh, feminist group and was told by the person uh, in charge of the group, a very charismatic woman, that he was bringing male pornographic fantasy to the group and he had to leave. So, you know, that level of hostility and suspicion towards men who were coming out with very, very difficult material was totally unacceptable. Yep. Uh, what have we got? Um, someone down there? Yes, who's got the mic now? Oh, me? I can't say yes, thank you, yes. Thank you. Um, I'd be interested to know what you think about positive discrimination and how that can affect... I'm, I'm a mother of three boys, yeah. and um, I think men sometimes find positive... I don't like positive discrimination. I think it diminishes women's um, values. Mm. Um, and how do you think it... I think men... It, it can put men off as well. 
What do you think about that? Well, let's look. It's a great question. Let's look at the all-women shortlists that Labour experimented with uh, in the run-up to the 1997 election. Uh, for quite a brief period, two years, 1994 to 96, or roughly around that time, um, they imposed all-women shortlists. Now, I, 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 was, I was very supportive, and I think it was great that they said, it has to be a woman, but you can choose which woman. You, you know, we're not going to impose a candidate on you. So there was an element of local democracy, but it was a very strong-armed effort to say, change is really not going to happen in who gets to sit in Parliament unless we have an element of, of, of coercion, of, of imposing change on a Labour Party that you know, had some progressive elements and had some less progressive elements. It was then ruled illegal, so they had to abandon it. But there wasn't time to reselect candidates for most of the seats. So they ended up running a great slate of women. And that is the point where there was a massive turning point in the number of women in Parliament. That was the breaking point where you know, women broke through. Now, those women have turned out to be Serious contenders. They're serious politicians. In no sense have they been sort of, um, you know, B movies, <laughs> uh, quota quickies. They, they are, um, as you know, on, on their own terms, they're competitors with with all other politicians. So, personally, I think that when it's done in a targeted way, perhaps in a time-limited way, that quotas can really work. That we are not seeing change. We're not seeing change around women in boardrooms. We're not seeing enough change around women's pay. And if quotas could help us drive towards those those goals. I, I personally agree with them. Yes, it's true that some men might feel um, aggrieved. Men feel aggrieved about all sorts of things, it has to be said. Um, but if you actually um, outline the kind of the existing situation and the inequalities that we are not seeing shift, uh, you know, I think actually it's a situation where we really need some, 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 some more techniques, and that's, that's an available one. Okay, have we got Hi. one up here? Um, oh. I'm 22, and I personally do identify as a feminist. But I constantly find myself um, between kind of groups of friends, male friends who are either one way or the other. Um, my best friend the other day was talking about his ex-girlfriend in a very negative way, and I kind of said to him, you know, that's not cool. And he kind of said to me, oh, no, don't be such a wet mm. whatever. Mm. Uh, and it was such a strange thing. I just didn't think that happened anymore, especially from you know good friends. But mm, mm. Um, but I've noticed that the general consensus, the best thing that you can do, it would seem, as a young man now, is to try and educate yourself in the best way uh, yourself, and and do that yourself, and and try and learn as much as you can, and kind of not stay silent necessarily, but kind of you know sit down and shut up in a way too, yeah. and kind of just like listen as much as you can. But I've noticed that, in a way, um, the times when I have been pushed away, it's because I've been accused but of like not following the proper protocol when it comes to something. Um, but to the point where I've done everything I can, but not been able to read minds. Mm. Um, and that has been really difficult. Yeah. When I've tried my best, but you know, kind of being pushed away. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that, especially in terms of, in the past, males being pushed away, male liberation, all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great to hear that you are doing exactly what the anti-sexist men's movement prescribed, which was to get people to what they, to what they call interrupt sexism, to interrupt it. That doesn't mean hostile interventions, but it might mean a nudge to your friend or a say, you know, yes, a kind of sense of, I'm, I'm not happy with you making those comments. So it's great that you're doing that in your own life. I think the costs of doing that can be quite high. It takes real courage 
to interrupt social situations that would otherwise just kind of proceed. If men are advocates for women's equality, it carries an enormous weight in lots of organizations. And I think you know, the, the need for the women's movement, for feminists to engage men um, uh, for gender justice is, you know, is enormous. How we go about doing that? Well, it's, it's, I think we can build it into organizations. I think the workplace is a great place to start where we can um, get men to, to champion women's equality, get men to champion equal pay. Um, no, no easy answer, but it's great that you're doing it. Have we got one? Yes, down here. Hello. Yes. Hi. Um, as a, a secondary school teacher, I spend a lot of time working with teenage boys on feminism, and the He for She campaign has yeah. been fantastic. Also, a big LGBTQ uh, uh, ally. Um, and I was really disappointed recently um, with the Gwen, uh, Gender Quake series on Channel 4. There was a feminist debate on that mm -hmm. about how alienated transgender women are uh, when it comes to the feminist debate, that um, a lot of feminists don't believe that they are part of yeah. the feminist movement. Um, and I was quite disappointed with that. I was wondering what you thought on that. Well, the trans debate is a really powerful one. And um, kind of at, at the end of the talk, I said, look, I, I, I really embrace gender pluralism. And in that sense, I absolutely embrace the sense that trans individuals um, are speaking up more, that we recognize that that's a larger category than perhaps we might have thought in the past, that we're trying to give voice to those individuals. That said, um, I do think that the women's movement and, and certain high-profile feminists like, like Jermaine Greer have um, received huge amounts of publicity for their transphobic comments. Um, I think back about how this... Um, might play out in the kinds of historical materials that I work on when I look at how bisexual individuals were treated in the um, 1970s and 80s. So the London Gay Men's Centre, um, which had all sorts of progressive um, uh, initiatives there, banned bisexual meetings. They were so incensed by the idea that you know, some people might be not sure where their sexual desire uh, um, lay, that bisexual was a really, really challenging category for them. There were actually quite a lot of bisexual men in the anti-sexist men's movement, um, but it, it, it wasn't an easy category to inhabit. And I think just as bisexual was deeply disconcerting to um, what was then the gay liberation movement, so today I think trans raises all sorts of you know, problems for people that they, they, they feel uncertain, they feel discomposed by, by the trans agenda. But for me, it's actually the building in this sense of gender is not binary is one of the most positive ways in which we can sort of diffuse that, that antagonism that has dogged feminism for so many years, but I think we could find ways of doing feminism that are less antagonistic. Thank you. Yeah, one over here. Um, yes, in, in terms of achieving political change, I wondered how you strike the balance between pushing a unique feminist voice and a campaign to build a broader, inclusive society. Uh, I'm thinking of a prominent gay campaigner in the States who said, we've dropped the ball. You know, we stopped turning out for the lesbians. The lesbians stopped supporting Black Lives Matter, stopped supporting the feminists, and the right have just played divide and rule. Mm. Um, I just wondered where you felt the balance should be between a unique feminist campaign and a, a campaign for an inclusive society. I think that the, one of the reasons why there's been such a big, powerful push behind feminism in recent years has been 
the success of kind of single issue campaigns. I mean, Me Too is um, t taken off in, in, in extraordinary ways. Everyday sexism was, was the same. And I do think that there's a real place for saying um, there are many issues, but you know, gender justice might be one where we really want to push um, uh, in a sort of dedicated way. That said, if you look at something like the Women's Equality Party, which is you know, trying to push those issues, they actually have a quite a broad slate of progressive interests, and they're, they, you know, they're invested in sort of environmental justice and so on. So if you, if you kind of scratch those campaigners, you'll probably find that they're interested on many issues, um, that they see possibilities for coalitions and alliances. But I do think that we need to have a distinctive, strong feminist voice, and we need um, distinctive people like Laura Bates who can, who can face that up and, and, and be those recognizable charismatic feminist figures. One over here, thank you, yes. Um, I want to thank you for taking me back to the 80s and <laughs> old memories of men's groups. Um, I just wanted to make a comment about the positive discrimination argument. Yeah. Um, I, I hear lots of people, men and women, saying it should be best person for the job. My question is, so who decides that? Who decides what the criteria are? Who judges those criteria? Um, and who makes those decisions. Um, and I don't think it's about positive discrimination, yes or no. I think it's about changing the diversity of people who make those decisions. Mm, yes. Thank you. I couldn't agree more with that. I think we've got time for one more question, or do we have to... No, I'm getting, I'm getting head shakes there from the, <laughs> from the side. I would love to carry on this debate with you all. It's been really fascinating. Can I just thank especially all the men who've come and who've asked questions. It's so great to get the chance to engage with a fantastic mixed-sex audience. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much.